All right, well, let me go ahead and start it here. So uh, first of all, my name is Heather Berry and I am the SDR division chair this year. Um, I wanna welcome you to the first event in a series we're calling Meta Theory. <laughs> Obviously, we are not going to do justice to a theory like behavioral strategy in a 90 minute session. You know, instead, we're really hoping to provide you with a great discussion with scholars who have developed and contributed to each of the theories that we're gonna be highlighting over the course of all of the sessions in Meta Theory. So I wanna thank Maka because she has been organizing all of the sessions in this series. For this uh, behavioral strategy session, she's been working with Felipe. I wanna thank him as well. Um, there'll be more formal introductions with names and where people are from and what they're doing, um, but to not repeat that and to take too much time, I just wanna thank Felipe and Linda and Viva and Song Sui and Dan for participating in this session today. So before uh, handing it back to Maka, I would also encourage everyone to look at the STR calendar. Uh, we've got lots of events going on, lots of virtual events. We are continuing to offer our symposium series. Um, in addition, we're offering a series we're calling Meet a Method. Um, we are continuing to offer teaching events and PDW, uh, excuse me, professional development uh, types of events, including one upcoming on doing a postdoc. So everything's listed on the uh, calendar. So I encourage you to look at it. So again, thank you, Maka, and please uh, go ahead. Thank you, Heather, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, my name is Maka Moline. On behalf of the STR division, I'm pleased uh, to kickstart this series that we're calling Mesa Theory. It really emerged out of conversations with members who have been participating in Meta Theory Scholars and a series of pandemic-inspired events that the SDR division has been organizing. And we identified this need to really delve, dive deep into particular theories or methods. So as part of these series, we're going to start today with behavioral strategy. But as you see from our calendar of events, we have upcoming events about real options, attention-based view resources and capabilities, and more in the coming months. So please stay tuned. So as part of this series, uh, in our behavioral strategy one, we're pleased to be joined by uh, Felipe Barr, who from University of Michigan, who kindly uh, coordinated this particular session, and our panelists, Professor Linda Argodi from Carnegie Mellon, Viva Gaba from INSEAD, Song Sui Hu from Arizona and Dan Leventhal from University of Pennsylvania. But looking at all of you in the audience here today, I don't think we could limit and say contributions to behavioral strategy theory is limited to discussions, to the limited one hour session that we're going to have today. And many of you have been contributors in this area as well. So uh, for a second, I'm going to have a poll to just get a sense of the audience and what is it that attract attracting you today for joining the session. Yeah, very nice. I already see more than 90% of you almost 90% of you have participated in the poll. So I'm gonna share the results at this point. And it looks like we have a very nice distribution of 32% of you really having behavioral strategy as your primary research area and others 
even though being familiar with this area, you're here more to learn, not as your primary area. So perhaps before getting to the panelists, we thought to hear from you and the audience in terms of uh, what is your own research interest in helping the 32% of but the other 68% of the audience in terms of how is it that your own research draws and expands on behavioral strategy? If you could take a minute to enter your ideas in the chat, we're hoping that after the session, the audience member could connect with each other, perhaps offline, learn from each other's perspectives, as the hour will only allow us to cover a very limited set of ideas. Very nice. This would be around the time that in MBA teaching, you would expect to see a couple of entries in Joshua, Mary, thanks for the first entries. Okay, let's spend another one minute on this exercise. I'm already learning uh, very interesting uh, research areas uh, from some of our audience members who are entering their thoughts in the chat. Very nice. I'm hoping that this can serve as a repository for everybody to be able to reach out to each other after the session and inspire a series of questions and comments as we go 
uh, through our panel discussion. Uh, so with this, I'll thank again, uh, Heather, for leading uh, this effort for the SPR division and thank uh, to Felipe for coordinating and moderating the session. So Felipe, uh, so the virtual stage is yours. Perfect. Thank you very much, Maka and Heather for, for this introduction. Thank you very much, everybody, for being here. It's this an awesome pleasure to be coordinating this first uh, meta theory session. So I will switch to my slides. Just one second. Um, to see me full screen, you have to choose uh, viewer. So in Zoom, click on speaker view. I'll be using my background as uh, to project my slides. So first of all, thank you to our panelists, uh, Linda, Vivha, Sonsui, and Dan, thank you very much. You will be hearing from them in a few minutes. So now I'm going to introduce our, our session. So what's the goal first of a, of a meta theory session? The idea is to provide an overview of a theoretical lens that we use in strategy research. So Maka asked me if I could coordinate the behavioral strategy session. And, and, and there was a problem. Yeah? And the problem is that behavioral strategy is really too vast to cover in just one session. There's a lot there. So we came up with a solution. And the solution is to emphasize some prominent parts of behavioral strategy. Particularly, we're going to look at some sub-theories or, or literatures within behavioral strategy. We're going to look at four, multiple goals, search, transactive memory, and performance feedback. And also, we are trying to add a little bit more of focus to this session by trying to focus on a promising area of application, which is the interactions between the individual and the organization, so micro, micro interactions. So the way I, I visualize this, hey, this is a big space, this big square, and we are going to look to one part of that square where there are particularly prominent uh, theories interacted with uh, a set of questions, a, 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 a set of application areas where there's a lot of open, open questions, promising questions. So for some of you, so the idea is this, this is, for example, for PhD students, hey, you don't know much about behavioral strategy, so we should have a definition. So what is behavioral strategy? And I could say there are two main definitions. I could call one definition one, it's a very broad understanding of behavioral strategy, which is to study questions by paying special attention to behavioral realism. And this behavioral realism takes two forms. One is in terms of the cognitive abilities of humans making the decisions. And the other part of behavioral realism is the organizational decision processes that are used to take as inputs those decisions of individuals. This has a very long history. So this starts with the work of Simon and, and Marge and Sired and the three founding books of the Carnegie tradition, organizational be administrative behavior organizations and a behavioral theory of the firm. So this starts in 1947. And uh, if, if you are just entering into this field, I think this paper is, provides a very great and excellent survey of the past and how to think about the future. So this paper is called the Neo Carnegie 
So Neil Carnegie, the Carnegie School's Past, Present, and Reconstructing for the Future by Gavetti, Levinsal, and Ocasio 2007 in Org Science. There's another meaning of behavioral strategy, which we will call the narrow understanding, which is using ideas from behavioral economics, particularly the idea of biases, to study strategy questions. And this is based on this paper by Powell, Lovallo, and Fox. So today in this session, we're going to be thinking about the broad understanding of behavioral strategy, meaning one. So we have the definition. Let's try to have a, a very broad map of, of research in behavioral strategy. And there are different ways in which you could split this field. But one way of doing this is in terms of where decisions are being made. What's the locus of decision making? And here you could think it happens within the individual, we'll call this individual level, or happens at the level of the organization, organizational level. So within individual level, there are a number of literatures. So literatures on heuristics, biases, self-enhancement, mental representation, and a literature about exploration and exploitation at the level of the individual. It's typically experiments in when individuals prefer to explore, try new things, or stick to what they have been doing. And then there's the organizational level research. And interestingly, this we can split into two. So there's research about organizations, but that usually assumes that the organization behaves as a unitary actor, as if it was one person. So here you have a lot of literature. Maybe most of the literature within this tradition of behavioral strategy is within this block. So organization level, but assuming unitary actors. Here you have literature on search, learning, routines, multiple goals, performance feedback, attention, problemistic search. Most of it, know that this is a very rough map. Yeah, So there will always be exceptions. And then there's another part of organizational level theories that really have multiple individuals and interactions among those. And those could be the literatures on information aggregation and, and transactive memory. Uh, but for the most part, I would say there's this divide, big divide between individual and organizational level. So these are like two separate tracks within, within behavioral strategy. But we know that organizations are comprised of individuals and that so individual characteristics should affect the behavior, the performance of, of uh, organizations. And we know that these effects are very nuanced. There are interactions. These are not additive effects. But the truth is that because this research has for the most part been completely separate, we don't know much about those interactions. So to give you an idea about what I mean by these nuanced relationships. So this one figure from, this is a main figure from this paper that uh, J.P. Eggers and I wrote in 2013. And here what we have is that the best organizational structure to use to make decisions, so the best way of aggregating decisions of multiple individuals depends completely on how diverse, how different are the decision makers. So if you have them all very similar, the best thing to do in this case is to average. If they are all very different, the best thing to do is to delegate. And when there are delegation problems, then the best thing to do 
is to vote. So completely depending or mostly depending on, on an individual level characteristic is what is the best to do at the organizational level. So that's what I mean by, by what happens at the organizational level depends in a very complex form on what's going on at the individual level. So the goal for today is to highlight some key ideas about behavioral strategy and have an opportunity to think about how they could illuminate this interaction between the individual and the organization. So that's my introduction. So now we move on to the presentations. This will be the order. First, Biva will be talking about multiple goals, Dan about search, Linda about transactive memory, and Sonsui about performance feedback. In between presentations, we are going to have one or two minutes for any clarification question that you may have. So a very short clarification question. To do that, please raise your virtual hand. And then while, while the presenters are presenting, please feel free to ask questions through the chat. And then at the end, after all the presentations, I will pick some of the most representative questions of those questions that are on the chat. And, and I will ask you to, to uh, ask it to the, the presenters. So that's the plan of the session. So Bivha, the floor is yours. Thank you, Felipe. Um, will you unshare your screen so that I can share mine? Are you able to see my screen? Yes, perfect. Yeah. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Um, okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about multiple goals uh, and the decision-making implications of multiple goals. Uh, but before I do that, I want to thank Marka, for Heather, Felipe, everyone for really organizing and putting together this wonderful initiative. Uh, when Felipe asked me to uh, ask me if I would be willing to talk uh, in this particular session, I was very uh, excited. Uh, because it is because Felipe asked me to talk about a topic uh, which is really which is really close to my heart and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, so what I want to do in very quick 10 minutes is give you a very quick overview of some of the work that has been done in this particular domain and then also raise some of what I believe are some interesting areas for or fruitful areas for for future research. Um, so I'll talk about decision-making implications of multiple goals, but I sort of want to start by really talking about why this, why this issue is important, right? And I observe something. So when I look at the practitioner world, I see there is almost an enduring efforts by practitioners to help managers, um, you know, uh, systematically link their actions with goals. And Balance Scorecard is a wonderful example of that. It is a performance measurement system, which is very popular uh, among organizations across industries. And the idea behind that is to really help managers link their various activities to a series of you know, financial and non-financial goal. Uh, the intent being that this would give a more holistic sort of picture of the firm to the managers. 
Um, and when you look at the academics and how they sort of view multiple goals problem, um, because of bounded rationality, they sort of highlight and argue that decision makers, I find it cognitively very difficult to manage multiple goals. And when they try to do so, um, they are often, you know, confused, uh, they lose direction, and in fact, it leads to performance freezes. But the reality is that goal conflict, goal prioritizations are very prominent and significant features of organizational life. And we need to kind of understand how conflict, goal conflict is uh, uh, is resolved, how uh, goals are prioritized in order to understand how decisions are made in the organization. Now, about six years ago, um, Hendrik and I got a chance to do a deep dive of the performance feedback literature uh, for the handbook that Linda and John were editing, uh, where we looked very carefully at the performance feedback research, and especially the empirical research, and we, want, and we made a couple of observations. Now, I'm not going to talk about the performance feedback uh, research, because I know that Samsu is going to talk about it more uh, explicitly, uh, but in, in the context of multiple goals, one of the observations we made is that um, the earlier work within the Carnegie tradition actually talked very extensively about the presence of multiple goals and aspirations and how that uh, impacts decision making. However, in the subsequent work, this idea of plur pl plurality of goals was somewhat lost, and especially um, in, the, in the empirical research. Nonetheless, uh, within the behavioral theory of the firm domain, there are essentially two ways to look at this problem. Um, you can think of, you know, the first approach sort of draws from uh, Simon's earlier, Herb Simon's earlier work on bounded rationality and says, well, multiple goals can be viewed as independent constraints on, uh, on some outcome variables. And, and the second approach is really sequential attention to goals, uh, where high priority goals are given, uh, given more attention. And once aspirations are fulfilled on these high priority goals, then decision makers switch their attention to secondary goals. And, and there is some re empirical research which sort of tests these ideas and find support for them. So there is not a whole lot of empirical research, but there was some. And, and it showed the additive effects of multiple goals. It showed the salience of multiple goals, salience in the sense that some goals are more salient for certain decisions versus the others. Um, there is also the differential effects of multiple, uh, but qualitatively similar goals within a corporate hierarchy. So you can think of financial performance goals at the corporate and business unit level, and they tend to have differential effects on, on outcomes. And of course, there is also evidence for sequential attention to goals. Um, so there is this research, uh, some empirical research, but what is interesting about this empirical research, if you look at it closely, it makes some very, very strong assumptions. And what are these assumptions? Firstly, um, the assumptions are that managers do not jointly consider multiple goals. Uh, goal prioritization in organizations is stable and often uncontested. And organizations are primarily profit-seeking. Sometimes they pursue additional goals, but these secondary goals are consistent and, and consistent with and, and contribute towards the profitability goal. So there is no conflict uh, among multiple goals. So what is missing and what does not get accounted for 
is what happens uh, when goals are of similar priority. How do decision makers make trade-offs uh, when they are faced with goals that are at least ex ante difficult to prioritize? Um, and when goals may be interdependent, uh, specifically they may be in conflict with each other, where the pursuit of one goal may impact the achievement of the other. Um, so, so, and, and, and when you look at this, you realize, in fact, the empirical research has taken, um, you know, uh, work even away from some of the ideas that were talked in the earlier work in within the Carnegie School, uh, because goal, uh, you know, goals, uh, high priority goals, goal interdependencies, these ideas are not new, they were talked, discussed conceptually, but almost always they are absent in the empirical work. Um, last year, Dan published a wonderful article with Klaus uh, about the plurality of goals and learning in the world of ambiguity. And, and he made a very wonderful point uh, and a very good point about highlighting that we are dealing with multiple goals. Oftentimes, the feedback is ambiguous, and it is absolutely imperative to understand how this ambiguous feedback or outcomes are interpreted. And this is not only a critical aspect of the organizational learning processes, but also is consequential for decision making. So the figure that you see here is really uh, showing performance relative to aspirations on two goal variables. And the dotted line is the aspiration level. So the top right-hand uh, quadrant, the top quadrant on the right-hand side is unambiguous success. The feedback is unambiguous success because performance is above aspirations on both the goal variables. There is, in one sense, no problem. And then on the lower uh, quadrant, lower left-hand side quadrant, we have unambiguous failure where performance relative to aspirations on both goal variables is, is, uh, is poor. And but what's interesting are these off-diagonal quadrants where the uh, feedback is a lot more ambiguous. And, and this is where I think we need a lot more focus and attention on going forward in our future research. So I completely agree with the points made by Dan and Klaus in their paper that it is important to understand uh, study decision-making contexts, which are very ambiguous. And, and the interpretation of these ambiguous outcomes becomes really, really important. Now, let's forget the unambiguous success for a minute because there's no problem here. In the context of unambiguous failure, if you are pursuing a multiple high priority goal, how are trade-offs made? And in one of the recent papers with Hendrik, we actually looked at this problem and we studied the safety and profitability goals in the context of airline industry, obviously, um, you know, every airline wants to be a safe airline, but they also want to be profitable airlines. And these goals are of high priority to all the airlines, and it is difficult to sort of, you know, order them uh, at least exactly. Now, if you are performing, uh, if the performance is below aspiration on both these goals, how do you sort of uh, uh, respond to that uh, feedback? And what we suggest in this paper and show that when you are in such situations, it can actually alter firms risk preferences and shift their attention from meeting aspirations to ensuring survival. And the goal which is perceived to be linked more closely uh, to survival tends to get priority. Um, but 
again, going back to the off sort of diagonal quadrants of ambiguous outcome, um, in these particular cases, I think the interpretation of this feedback becomes extremely important. So, for example, some of the questions that we could ask in future research is, what are the sources? So in ambiguous decision-making context, uh, what are the sources of interpretive differences when pursuing multiple high-priority goals? Why do some goals receive more attention than the others? And uh, whether some goals, there are some goals that can be completely ignored. How do goals get activated in the first place? And what are the performance implications of pursuing uh, these conflicting goals. Now, I want to add a little bit, you know, uh, go uh, just a minute more, take a minute more and go further into, you know, uh, potentially sort of laying on the table for our conversation, what could be possible ways to address these, some of these uh, questions. And one of the ways in which we could potentially address this question is to really start taking uh, seriously or explicitly that individuals who are making decisions are situated in different decision-making structures and process different pieces of information in the pursuit of multiple goals. And, and if you start thinking, if you take this explicitly, then in fact, we are fortunate because there is a very vibrant stream of literature which examines the relationship between structure, individual cognition, and decision-making broadly. And the broad question that this uh, domain of research really asks is how does some structure influence which information and decisions uh, are prioritized, right? So one way to think about it is the structurally segregated individuals hold different mental representations, which can result in divergent interpretations of, uh, of issues or attention to goals. Um, in the context of ambiguous outcomes, Variations in perceptions can lead to contestation about goal prioritization, fuel debates concerning the best course of action, provide managers you know, the opportunities to self-enhance uh, through more favorable interpretation of feedback. The implication, uh, the big implication here is that I want to sort of lay on the table for our conversation is that there exists uh, structures role in the misalignment of meanings which in turn has the potential to cause conflicts and perhaps impede the achievement of multiple goals. And there may be other implications as well. Uh, but I want to leave with this point, I think, and repeat myself uh, in one way. Um, irrespective, I think we need to make sense of how managers make sense of ambiguous feedback and, this, and, and, and how it impacts the decisions in organizations. And this particular focus, I believe would be a very fruitful area of research in, in this subdomain going forward. Thank you. I'm going to stop. Thank, thank you so much, Bivha. That was a wonderful presentation. So now we have time for one quick clarification question. If anyone has, please raise your virtual hand. If not, we will move to the next presentation. So I don't see any clarification question, so then time to, to move on. And now it's Dan's turn. Dan, the floor is yours. Perfect, we can see you. Oh, but you're muted. 
Right. Uh, ah, but I want to be in slide view and then all this other stuff going on. Need to make you people small so I can control my screen. Sorry. Ah, well, okay. Let me uh, give up on that that technology effort. Uh, so, so thank you, Felipe. So, my understanding, my sort of marching orders from from Felipe uh, was is to think about this is some issues around cognition, but as Felipe noted, trying to bring the organization in and. I want to actually start where sort of uh, Viva left us off, all right? And so, uh, and offer up a very early site, okay? Even before, uh, not only before uh, uh, Viva's work with John Joseph, uh, but even before uh, Dearborn and Simon. Uh, so in the Tales of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis has this kind of provocative suggestion about uh, situated cognition, right? What you see, what you hear, depends a lot where you're standing. Uh, I think that kind of idea, enters the organization literature uh, with Dearborn and Simon's uh, early work. And again, how, how context, uh, organizational context impacts people's understanding, perception, and so on. Um, and to push that on this idea a little bit for, for, uh, further. So, you know, what is context? Uh, context can be sort of functional role structures, right? Per on the chalkboard, we have, you know, uh, and, and kind of in the Dearborn Simon work, you're in marketing uh, or you're in design. And in design, you find the people who manage the supply chain uh, or manufacturing to be somewhat rigid individuals. And conversely, the folks in those other contexts may find design people have a excessive affection for colored t-shirts and post-it notes. So that's sort of how our, our kind of role structure might map it out. Um, but obviously, we can be situated through informal network structures. Uh, folks who you hang out with on Facebook have particular points of view about vaccines. Does that change your own understanding, belief structure, and sense of that? Um, I think we tend to underappreciate um, the external context. What is the niche space in which one is, is operating? Uh, so, for instance, I think, you know, for me, the sort of... Uh, killer app in some sense of example for that is Clay Christensen's early work, right? So we have this new technological artifact, new hard drives. Who do you ask? Do I ask desktop users? Do I ask laptop users? One gets a very different um, kind of response. So, so another way in which we can have situated kind of understandings, cognition. Uh, returning to Professor Simon, so Simon notes early on for us, in general organizations and more broadly social systems tend to be nearly decomposable. So how does this map some of our interests around uh, cognition and search and so on? Uh, well, nearly decomposable means, so most of the folks you interact with are, are kind of in a particular subsample, my, my block diagonal here, um, but their interdependencies across. It's, it's nearly not fully decomposable. Now, those kind of interrelationships, those interdependencies, as I know here, are sort of both the bane and the reason why we have organizations, right? So if those are really trivial, we have things called markets. So Carlos Baldwin kind of, in her discussion of sort of thick and thin connections, right? You know, her thin is, well, there's only a few of these stray annoying X's off diagonal and a high hacking world of talking about prices 
dealing through suppliers kind of works. Um, you know, if you're, you're Nelson and Winter, it's, oh, that's why we have routines. You know, in their lovely, wonderful chapter five, most of the time readers don't get past the sort of first two thirds. The last third talks about politics, right? And so we have ideas around troops. You know, the design people can start fighting with supply chain and manufacturer. We have some rules by which we regulate those interdependencies. And I also want to kind of note, and it, you know, again, building on Viva's remarks, as opposed to the, the economic point of view is often like, you know, the, the agent is born lazy, all right? He or she doesn't want to work for the principal, they'd rather sleep in, there's effort aversion. Um, in the organization context, you don't enter the organization in you know, necessarily innately hostile to some broader objectives, but your subtask makes salient certain objectives that may ultimately create some conflict and different understandings uh, with other actors in the organization. Uh, you can be you know, even more kind of situated cognition. You know, think about Beth Betchke would think about this is how these actors begin to get some shared understanding. Okay, so I think this simple schematic can, can give us a lot about this kind of structure and where I sit in structures and the nature of these structures. Some of the challenges, um, again, linking me back to, to Viva's remarks. Now, getting more to my, you know, the mission or my, my agenda to talk about search. So search is a pretty big idea, and it has at least uh, two important distinct components that, that Torgren and I tried, tried to uh, make clear in, in this paper a few years back, that there's search as in what, what alternatives I, I make focal, that I examine, that I consider. Uh, and then there's how do I consider it? Okay, and what's involved in there, right? So, much of our work is kind of akin in some ways to the multi-antmar bandit problem where, okay, do I explore arm I, explore jive J? What's my search heuristic? Am I, you know, my, my tension between exploitation and exploration around that? That's really about, you know, what am I examining? The evaluation is fairly trivial. You know, it may be stochastic, and that can have per Denrell and March, you know, certain pathologies. Uh, such as the hot stove effect, but you know, there is, you know, there's some observable outcome that in that tradition, we don't problematize. We don't have the interpretive element that, that's gonna be kind of fairly central in, in a lot of the remarks um, today. And in that line, it seems to me, we often, we worry about recombination. We worry about kind of this degeneration element, I think to some degree. I think our consideration of evaluation ex-ante evaluation uh, or intermediate evaluation is sort of tends to be under-examined, right? So there's the limit case of pure search, my ping pong lottery thing. Uh, oh, lucky me, I got the lucky, I got the winning ping pong ball. My ticket's the winner. Um, you know, I searched, I, I closed my eyes, I pick a ball out of a particular urn, I got lucky or not. There's no dispute that kind of outcome. We can also, at the other limit, have ex post competition. You know, who knows what the right battery storage technology is going to be? Engineers are going to work really hard. They're going to develop it. There's going to be parallel efforts. And in three years, we'll sort of see ex post what turned out to be the better uh, approach. For me, I think what's one of the really interesting, important aspects of organizations is their rule, role in this intermediate evaluation. You know, this idea that Hart and, I, Hart and I talked about some time ago, 
you know, part of my critique of real options with Ron Adner had that same push of a lot of that work, well, you have a whole discussion, so it's uh, but, you know, trivializes the stage too, like, oh, we got some outcome, now we exercise the option or not, versus, again, per, you know, Viva's remarks, often there's this ambiguity of partial failure, partial success. So when we evaluate, what's the criteria by which we, and so organizations get to have a lot of freedom and latitude, create milestones and so on. And I think those issues um, are really central and, and they come, come up in bits and pieces. And let me suggest maybe our, our tribe should be a little imperialistic in this way. Um, so Saturday March wrote a wonderful book called The Behavioral Theory of the Firm. Uh, in economics, the theory of the firm is a completely different agenda, okay? In economics, the agenda theory of the firm is understanding firm boundaries. So Williamson tells us to worry about transactions costs, Grossman and Hart tell us to worry about property, about property rights, but it's understanding this contrast between market and at least a stylized conception of a quote, organizational relationship. To a first order proclamation, our, our tradition, and please don't get some people here, Saturday March don't problematize this as a firm. You know, there's Gimbel's department store in downtown Pittsburgh. How do they set prices? So, you know, it's a taken for granted thing that they're trying to understand how it operates, the interesting complexity of tensions within it. Um, and so I guess my, you know, the sort of uh, behavioral evolutionary point of view, uh, my, uh, I gotta try to push a little bit in thinking about what could be our theory of the firm, behavioral strategy theory of the firm. Seems to me really what's fundamental for what the organization does it mediates between the rewards, profit and loss that the world bestows upon it and how it chooses to rein those outcomes on individual subunits and actors within it, right? That's their discretion. You know, the firm can write contracts that hire will hardwire some of those relationships. The salesperson gets so much as a function of their sales and so on, but that's a choice. Uh, and so I sort of like to hearken back to John Holland's work on this idea of credit assignment. And, and as I suggest here, it seems to me at least three fundamental dimensions by one watch one might consider that, that kind of question. Um, what's the unit? You know, uh, per say, Willie Ocasio, John Joseph's early work, you know, McKinsey helps General Electric think about the strategic business unit. They create a new unit of selection, a unit of kind of which by what performance is measured. A lot of our current, you know, AI kind of big data approaches allow us to get very, very granular. Um, kind of interesting, possibly useful, but back to Simon and nearly composable systems, you can get granular, but there may be important interdependencies between that focal observation of that particular actor, actor in that context, that, that those interdependencies may not be reflected in the big data, uh, real-time information you're getting, and per real-time information, you know, back to some of my early work with, with Jim March on the myopia of learning, near-term feedback may not be indicative of long-term prospects. And again, back to the organization and selection criteria, it doesn't have to use bottom line profit and loss. It can create all sorts of metrics around what it might think might be milestones and so on by which it gets to decide um, what success is. And, and I think, you know, per that and per timing, that's really central organizations. You know, and if you think about it, as often I think about sort of biological, evolution biology kind, kind of analogs or, or motivating metaphors, 
you know, we as homo sapiens are really interested in that regard. You know, we start in period one or zero, remarkably incompetent. It is only through this seemingly irrational love of these older homo sapiens who take this deep interest in the newborn that that newborn survives. Um, and so we have this kind of a family structure, kin selection, other elements that, that buffer and allow the playing out. Uh, and so social structures, particular organizations, get to make choices on these three dimensions. And I think that's really fundamental uh, to their ultimate adaptive success and, and why I haven't achieved the full imperialism, uh, but I've sort of tried to pull together some of the ideas in, in, in kind of a recent um, monograph in particular, worried about and trying to unpack some of these issues around selection and offer up a little bit my somewhat curmudgeonly or trying to broaden uh, consideration of the recent enthusiasm around experimentation as in random control trials and contrast that a little bit with uh, the sort of in situ AB kind of testing. Uh, back to these issues of the role of context and how we evaluate uh, well, search, search adaptive efforts. So uh, let, me, let me end it there and let me uh, attempt to uh, uh, unshare my screen, which I'm gonna now be... Uh, uh, thank, thank you very much, Dan, for that excellent right. presentation. Thank you. So any quick clarification questions you have, please raise your virtual hand. So if not, then it's uh, Linda's turn. Linda, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. The screen Felipe. is yours. I'd like to thank Heather and Maka and Felipe for organizing this very interesting session. Uh, and it was a treat to hear Viba and Dan, and I'm, I'm looking forward to Sansi's and the uh, broader discussion. Let me see, I need to share my screen. Okay, can you all see this? Yes. Thank you. Uh, so as Felipe mentioned in his intro, uh, there's a very rich literature on how individual cognition uh, and bounded rationality affect and are affected by organizational structure and performance. Uh, there's an emerging literature on how distributed cognition affects organizational structure and performance. Uh, and the particular form of distributed cognition I'd like to talk about is transactive memory systems. Uh, and I'm using a broad definition of structure that I learned at Michigan uh, from Dan Katz, uh, which is that it's recurring patterns of activities, and then there can be different dimensions of structure. Uh, so Felipe asked me to talk about cognition and structure uh, in the context of organizational learning, uh, a favorite topic of mine. So I would like to put up um, a graph that came from some work Dennis Eppel and I did on learning curves in three manufacturing plants. I'm sure this crowd is familiar with the learning curve pattern, so I don't need to explain that. Um, but I will mention that when we did this study, and we were mainly interested in quantitative analyses of things like the effect of turnover or changing shifts, 
Uh, but we did some interviewing at the beginning of the study, asking uh, managers, engineers, technical support staff, what they saw as explaining the learning curve. Uh, and they told us four things. I'm, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list, but this is what came out of our interviews, uh, that it was increased proficiency of individuals, uh, not just direct production workers, but also uh, managers, engineers, support staff, uh, improved coordination and structure. And they gave us examples of fine tuning the structure to provide better responsiveness, uh, improved technology and layout. Uh, and then they said something that had not been mentioned in the literature at this time. And this was circa late 80s that we were doing this work. They said better knowledge of who is good at what. Uh, now, they didn't use the word transactive memory systems, uh, but I gave this, um, uh, these four factors by way of background in a talk I was giving on learning curves, and Dick Moreland, my colleague in, uh, in social psychology at the University of Pittsburgh, was in the audience. And he came up afterwards and said, you know, that sounds an awful lot like the concept of transactive, transactive memory that Daniel Wegner had introduced right about that time. Um, so we started a line of work on transactive memory, um, which was originally developed to characterize the behavior of people in close relationships, where people might specialize, say that one person might remember the birthdays of both partners, families, or another person might remember where um, to get everything fixed. Um, so Wegner again talked about this in the context of, of couples or people in close relationships, but we thought we'd seen that going on in, in groups and certainly our uh, respondents at the manufacturing plant suggested that this kind of knowledge was important in their organizations. So knowledge of who knows what provides access to a much larger pool of knowledge than individuals possess. I put a more formal definition up here from uh, Lewis and Herndon, a piece that appeared in Orc Science in 2011. I, I've been very excited, by the way, to see how many of the citations that people have mentioned have appeared in Orc Science. So a little plug for the journal there. Sorry, can't resist. Um, a collective system for encoding, storing, and retrieving information was the more formal definition. Uh, this concept's been applied to teams. Diane Liang, Dick Moreland, and I did uh, the first study at this level Andrea Hollingshead has done several really lovely studies. Uh, Kyle Lewis applied it to consulting teams, Samir Farage and Lee Sproul to software development teams, a study uh, about five years ago applying it to hospital, to top management teams. Uh, and I would like to share with you a bit of work that my colleagues and I are doing, applying it to hospital trauma teams. And here's a picture that was in uh, Fortune, I believe, that sort of was my image of a transactive memory. You have your own brain, but then you have links to all these other people because you know what they know. So how transactive memory works is as members work together, they learn who knows what and who's it good at what. So some of the consequences of a Strong transactive memory are the better matching of individuals to jobs. So this would affect the, uh, the role structure, I think, in, in Dan's uh, uh, formulation. 
uh, members know who to consult for information or advice. So this would affect the, the advice network, the communication structure. So this knowledge of who knows what then affects the structure in that it affects recurring patterns of activities. So I couldn't resist an example from possibly a uh, example. We weren't able to measure transactive memory, but I think this is a kind of evidence that could be interpreted as transactive memory. Um, Jamar Chase, who my brother loves because he went to the, they went to the same high school, uh, was uh, is a wide receiver. He joined the Cincinnati Bengals in 2021, just this past year. Plays with Joe Burrow, who's the quarterback who joined a year before. Now, Burrow and Chase had played together at LSU in 2018 to 2020, where they won the national championship. Um, for those of you who um, had a chance to watch any football over the weekend, uh, the Bengals won the AFC championship for the first time. Um, their previous win was in 1988. Now, we would need to control for many things as well as get measures of transactive memory to say that this was due to transactive memory. But I would like to suggest that that's the kind of linkages where people have worked together a lot. They know what each other's good at. They can anticipate each other's behavior. Um, that is the underpinnings of transactive memory. And I've got lots more examples from sports that my students now email me over the years. So happy to, to share any more with them. If we look at the research literature, um, there's evidence that the more procedures surgical teams uh, do together, the better their performance. Ray Reagan's Daria Brooks and I did a study on that. There've been other studies looking at how experience affects, um, experience at different levels affects outcomes. Interesting study by Huckman and Pisano, where they found that surgeons who perform the same operation in different hospitals have different success rates. So the surgeon's capabilities presumably are, are constant, but it's, it's the other colleagues at the other resources that are not. So a TMS developed for one set of colleagues would not be relevant to another. Uh, and then another line of work supportive of this is the idea that um, the findings by Grossberg and Lee and, and others that moving with teams is more effective than moving solo. So none of these studies have been able to measure transactive memory. And it can be challenging to find a context where you have um, enough, um, enough measures, long enough time series to do quantitative analyses um, and can get the measures of performance uh, while at the same time can measure transactive memory, the more in-depth um, processes. So we're very excited because we have found a context, a very interesting context where we think we can come close. Uh, and this is work on transactive memory and trauma resuscitation teams that's ongoing with Drs. Jeremy Kahn, Matthew Rosengart, and Cindy Tang of the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Jerry Guo of Aarhus University, and Kiwan Han of Carnegie Mellon University. So we're looking at how uh, the transactive memory on these trauma resuscitation teams affects the performance of the team. Uh, and then we look at how team experience affects the development of the transactive memory systems, which in turn uh, affect performance. So what makes it possible for us to do this study is that each 
resuscitation is taped uh, and reviewed for quality insurance. So this is uh, Jerry, Kiwan, and me uh, looking at the tapes to see if we thought we could code transactive memory. This wasn't the actual coding sessions, but just to, to see whether we, we thought we could do that. Um, the answer seems to be yes. We developed behavioral measures of TMS indicators uh, based on the Lewis survey. Uh, we had two coders blind to outcomes because the outcomes don't come till you know days after this um, resuscitation event. Uh, they can code reliably. And we find so far we've looked at one link in the chain, which is whether transactive memory matters. Um, increases in transactive memory of resuscitation teams are associated with shorter lengths of stay in both the ICU and the hospital. So these are big changes, shorter length of stay in the ICU, almost two days. I should say the average stay for this group is seven days. These are the severely injured patients. And in the hospital, a reduction of um, almost four days on an average length of stay of 15. So these are, are big effects we're excited about. Uh, we're now looking at on a different data set because the HR database is in a different set than the um, data we've been looking at on, on length of stay. And the answer seems to be that transactive memory is predicted by team performance, but not by individual performance. Uh, and it does mediate the effect of team performance, team experience on performance. So we're working on this part of the um, project now to nail that effect down more, more tightly. And I should mention that, of course, the, this, one of the challenges in this line of work is controlling for all the myriad factors besides um, experience or besides transactive memory that could affect outcomes. And we are fortunate we have great um, doctors collaborating with us. So we've got controls in there for the severity of the injury, for patient conditions, like whether they were diabetic, obese, hypertension. We've got characteristics of the team. Um, so we're, we're excited about this and, and think it could have um, an impact, not just on our theories, but, but hopefully in um, the care provided to patients. So if I pull it back to the topic that Felipe asked us to talk on or asked me to talk on, um, I think we're seeing emerging work on individual cognition and structure um, continues to include work on individual cognition, what Felipe referred to as a unitary actor uh, approach, but it's adding work on distributed cognition, the, the multi-actor approach. Um, and we think this provides a richer characterization, uh, providing the micro underpinnings at the group level of what goes on inside organizations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Linda, for that wonderful presentation. So if, if there's any clarification question, uh, we have a minute for that. Is there anything? I don't see any questions now, so let's move on. And now it's Sun Shui's uh, turn. Please, Sunsui, the, the screen is yours. Can you all see the slide? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, first, I also want to thank everyone for organizing the session. Uh, thanks, Felipe, for inviting me to join this fun session. Thank Linda, Dan, and Viva for the wonderful presentations. So I will focus on the role of cognition and the structure in the context of performance feedback. Uh, given that uh, two thirds of our audience uh, new to the behavioral strategy error, I would like to briefly introduce uh, performance feedback model. So what is performance feedback model? It's rooted in the behavioral theory of the firm. Uh, this classic theory models organizations as goal-directed systems that use simple decision rules to alter their activities in response to performance feedback. So the central Argument is that performance below an aspiration level will lead to problemistic search, which is defined as a search that is stimulated by a problem and is directed toward finding a solution to that problem. So the general prediction is that problemistic search is associated with increased organizational risk taking or change. This original model is parsimonious. Uh, it found to be robust across dozens or even hundreds of empirical studies across complex and a lot of different strategic outcomes. I list some examples here. Uh, again, it's just not exhaustive at all. Um, there are also some studies looking at the boundary conditions of the original behavioral, uh, original performance feedback model by looking at some firm specific contingencies like slack, size, among others. So the original model is parsimonious, powerful, and we already learned something about their boundary condition, but why not stop here, but make it more complicated? I, organization st structures, people, cognition, and uh, multiple goal matter. Um, so since Viva has provided a very important uh, guidelines on multiple goals, I will focus my presentation on the role of cognition and the structure in three sub processes of problemistic search. Which goal or aspiration to attend, how to interpret performance outcome, and where to search. So first, which goal aspiration to attend? Uh, aspiration level is important because it serves as a trigger in the problemistic search. So what do we know now? Uh, we know that most of studies focus on financial goal, like a return on assets, and they got aspirations using differential reference points, such as, such as historical or social reference points. Some provide some reasonable justification, but the with majority of studies actually are silent about why they pick one reference point, but not others. Uh, we also know that organizations consist of multiple collisions with conflicting goals. However, there is only limited work exams the formation, selection of the goals, especially the, the dynamics and the potential uh, political battle in the process. So how can we deal with cognition and the structure? Feel like we need more research incorporating the role of cognition and the structure to help us understand how firms select financial versus non-financial goal, uh, internal versus external goal, OM versus others performance as the reference point, and also when to set ambitious or achieve, more achievable goal. Uh, as FIBA 
mentioned that there are only limited work on non-financial goals, such as the safety in the airline industry, or maybe uh, operational goals like fuel efficiency, reliability in the automobile industry. Um, we also have limited knowledge on where goal comes from, like from internally or maybe from external, like third party ranking, like KLD, or maybe the government imposed the goal. We know relatively more about uh, the selection between own versus others performance as the reference point. Um, recent study by audience and the colleagues showed that uh, uh, firms with more powerful CEO tended to select a non-conforming reference group. So mm, more, much more work needed in this area as well. And the interesting study by Daniel, Daniel, I know you're here, by Daniel Q and GP Agus point out that, that aspiration has dual roles. Uh, one is the evaluative role, the other is resource allocative role. So if managers focus more on the resource allocative role, they tend to set, set a more ambitious goal. On the other hand, if they focus more on the evaluative role of aspiration, they tended to set more achievable goals. So all these are provide some initial evidence that the role of cognition and the structure can help us significantly improve our, learn, our knowledge in goal selection and formation. Second, even organizations has a silent goal to attend it to, but it's still a question how to interpret the performance outcome because the evaluation of outcome can be ambiguous. Uh, it could be because managers' psychological factors such as self-enhancement and self-assessment matter, um, and particularly so when firms face ambiguity, uh, for example, facing inconsistent feedback from multiple reference points or maybe from multiple goals. Um, so we need more research incorporating the role of cognition and the structure in better understanding what's the line between success and failure, how firms allocate their attention and when problematic search or self-enhancement mechanisms are triggered. Um, some recent work by Bragova and uh, colleagues and uh, among others uh, find that uh, CEOs with different levels of, uh, of overconfidence and also CEO with different types of power, they tended to draw different line between success and failure, which ultimately affect how they respond to firm and the performance. So again, some work has been done, but still for response and uh, uh, we will benefit a lot if the performance, future performance feedback theory can incorporate in the role of cognition and the structure. The third process is where to search. So if an organization agree on the interpretation of the outcome, where to search is next relevant to a question. Uh, the literature provided some useful arguments on, on, on this. First, the problemistic search is initiated at the local area of the problem. It can become broader when performance declines are severe. However, there is no ex-ante well-defined solution space or alternatives uh, due to bounded rationality, which means uh, first, in facing similar city performance situation may end up with very different solutions and taking very different uh, actions as a result. 
overall, we still lack a theory of directed search. So um, some future work incorporating the role of cognition and structure can better help us understand uh, local versus distant search. Um, we, we have research on managerial cognition already showed that uh, some companies tended to search more exploratory solutions if their mental representations allow them to search the environment more distantly. Uh, recently, some work by Bosenbach shows that uh, uh, organizational structure matters, um, like relatedness level of different deficiencies can also affect the can also shape firms such as strategy, uh, affect their resource allocation. And uh, some earlier work by Felipe also mentioned that uh, organizational uh, decision-making with different level of consensus matters a lot in firms such behavior. So if more in integration between organizational structure and also uh, their Performance feedback can, can help us better understand the search direction. Uh, one of my recent work with my colleagues, we, we, uh, we, this, we, we found that uh, social network structure can also help shape the search direction uh, in the context of venture capital firms. So overall, uh, we believe that uh, some work, some interesting work has been done uh, using integrating the role of cognition and the structure in the performance feedback, but much more is needed. And uh, it's important for us to help open the black box of problemistic search. And uh, hopefully by all this work, and especially those of you who new to the era, this is really the time for you to get on board. And that's all for my presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sonsui, for that excellent uh, presentation. And thank you to all the speakers, yeah, for those yeah, very inspiring and, and uh, thought-provoking presentations. So now we have like 17 minutes for Q&A. I've seen two questions in the chat that we will address, but I want to give the, a homework to the speakers so that they think uh, during these 17 minutes. And then at the end, we will have a minute for them to give their answers. So, so what's the homework is imagine uh, a bright PhD student knocks your door and asks for a research topic. Yeah. So what would you say is a very promising topic that's worthwhile for that PhD student to devote his or her complete uh, career? Yeah. So that's the question for the end. You have to answer that promising research for a whole career. Okay, so now let's address the questions I've seen. Um, there was a question at the beginning by Aline. Aline, please, if you could ask that, that question, please. Sure, hi, Felipe, thank you, everyone. This was uh, really interesting. I love this format, um, this new, new series. Uh, Viva, I had a question um, about whether you can speak a bit to whether you think there are some interesting theoretical bridges between um, the emphasis on this literature on multiple goals and uh, you know a similar kind of more phenomenological take maybe on how managers can manage um, conflicting goals in hybrid organizations such as social enterprises where we have uh, you know profit maximizing and social impact that can sometimes be either conflicting or complementary and if you could speak to the potential for 
um, for connections between those or, or not? Um, so Eileen, thank you uh, for raising this question. And it's funny you asked this because I've had this uh, conversation with some of the colleagues who are actually studying hybrid organizations and, and, and when they are talking about their work and explaining to me what they're doing and oftentimes uh, they bring in an institutional theory lens more often than not to study uh, the processes in the hybrid organizations. Um, I don't know, you're studying a multiple goals problem. So uh, it is a multiple goals problem. I cannot see it any other way. So, you know, a short answer to your question is yes. I mean, I see hybrid organizations as incredibly interesting phenomena, a context where you can get insights into, um, you know, how multiple goals are uh, reconciled um, in, in an, on an everyday basis how the trade-offs are made and how attention is sustained across these multiple goals. Um, and I think, uh, but I haven't thought very deeply about it, but one thing that I'm asking myself is what's really different in the context of hybrid organizations. And one thing that's quite obvious to me immediately is that these goals, multiple goals are perhaps, and I'm speculating here, more salient. Uh, because uh, so they are sort of, you know, socialized, the individuals or the managers are socialized into thinking about these multiple goals uh, very frequently. Um, so the salience of multiple goals is much stronger, perhaps, in hybrid organization relative to others, uh, where uh, you know, we know that multiple goals exist, but not all the goals are activated all the time. Um, the salience of the goals can vary over time and so forth. So, you know, just a speculation on my part, but yes, I see a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of potential for uh, the two pieces of, you know, work to connect with each other. Thank you. I don't know if I Thank you. And Erwin has a question for Linda. Erwin, could you ask your question? Oh, you caught me by surprise. Do you hear me? Okay. I thought you would read it aloud. I was wondering uh, how, sh how uh, uh, she sees the connection, the difference, the similarities between her concept of transactive uh, memory systems and team mental models, which is somewhat of a parallel construct uh, in the team literature. Lin Linda, you have to unmute, please. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. Um, thank you, Erwin, that's a great question. Uh, I think they're they're similar in some ways, as you alluded to, and, and different in, a, in an important way. Uh, the similarity is that they both reflect some degree of agreement or sharing, you know, shared mental models. We agree on how we generally do things here in this organization. Um, transactive memory systems, there's agreement on who's good at what. Uh, where there's a big difference, though, is that the transactive memory systems are distributed. Different people are good at different things and different people are expected to do different things. Whereas the shared mental models, it's more 
this is how we as a group or how as an organization approach this. There isn't that distribution. The, the emphasis is on the, the sharing or the agreement. It's a great question and they're certainly related. Thank you. Thank you. And um, Maka has a quest another question for Bivha. Yes, uh, thanks again, Felipe, and uh, thank you to all the panelists. This was very insightful, and I was absorbing a lot of information listening uh, to the presentation. I certainly count myself among the 68% who do not like do primarily research in behavioral area. So I have one question for Viva and one for Dan. Uh, for Viva, I was really amazed uh, with the evidence that you point at that organizations sequentially prioritize multiple goals. And I was thinking about the adverse effects of that. Does that really mean that the goals that they push back in terms of time and resource commitments suddenly become secondary goals and then it adversely affects them? Or is it that just pushing them back towards a later time when they have more resources, more attention to devote to them, could potentially actually put them on prime time and make the secondary goal be more of their uh, focus and outcome. And for Dan, uh, uh, my question uh, was a little bit of a blend of what you presented today and, and another presentation inspired by your book around the Mendelian view of evolution. On uh, Monday, we had another session here in SPR talking about the scientific approach to uh, strategic decision-making and how is it that organizations constantly evolve as they try to absorb information in the environment, but the information that comes to them is not just random information or what they cognitively absorb. Instead, they try to proactively go and experiment, make changes in the environment, and then see what are the impacts of those changes. So I would appreciate your insights about how these two perspectives complement each other and what could be the implications for behavioral theory. Overall, thank you again. This was very, very helpful and useful to hear your perspective. So Maka, I can go first and then uh, Dan can also answer part of my question because I think you would be better at it. Um, I, I think you raise a very good question. Um, we have not seen a lot of empirical work understanding the performance consequence of sequential attention to goals. Um, so what happens? What's the implication for it, uh, of it, performance implication of it? Um, so I cannot think of any papers, at least that I've seen, that has looked at that particular question. So I don't really have the answer um, in, in one sense. Um, and it could be, you know, possibly we, why have we not looked at it? And one of the reasons could be uh, within the behavioral theory of the firm, I think the emphasis is less on sort of um, looking at what's the quality of the change made as a consequence of performance feedback learning. Um, there is a change, there is some behavioral outcome but the quality of that behavioral outcome or the performance implications of those outcomes are not examined uh, very often. Um, but having said that doesn't mean we shouldn't examine it. It's, a, it's an interesting question uh, to look at, but I don't really have the answer. Maybe Dan can add to that as well. Uh, I don't think I have the answer, but I think maybe a, a way of a non-answer is, you know, as economists talk about the second best. And so I think we sort of, 
there are trade-offs. And so if, as Viva says, it is very hard to have meaningful direction and intention and conversation simultaneously about multiple goals, well, okay, we have fewer goals, but we understand that's a subset of a broader space of consideration. And so I think the sequential attention is a sort of imperfect way to deal with organizations are coordination devices. We need to be on the same page. If I give you 20 goals and don't make one or two salient, we probably will have a hard time or people have to guess about that. But at the same time, you know, we didn't worry about quality, this or that, you know, events may shade. So I, I don't think, you know, again, I think that's sort of second best, you know, given, given the constraints of the need for folks at attention in a world that actually has multiple dimensions of merit uh, and no simple ways of aggregating them, you get it. But per your point, yes, there's a cost. Uh, is this the flavor of the month? How seriously do I take the, the, what the executive team is telling me today? Am I undoing some of these prior efforts and, and what is lost? So I think there's a really interesting tension between sort of, um, you know, some degree of useful inertia, <laughs> but we don't want to be full on inert because we understand those pathologies. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think you tee up some, some really important issues. Um, on the, the other question, I think, yeah, so as somebody interested in learning, it's exciting when, when whether it's lean startups or the scientific method, oh, the conversation we're learning is going. What I worry is that we don't, you know, back to, you know, some of the discussion we've had today about interpreting outcomes. So, you know, was the experiment a success or a failure? Um, how representative are those results? So we can do the RCT, um, that's great. But it's interesting, you know, at some level, you think about like know, the Nick Bloom kind of agenda on practices. So consciously, they are choosing fairly generic things like, oh, counting inventory, good or bad, you know? Do we measure when people show up for work? Um, and it turns out, you know, they need things that have universal truths. And McKinsey can pay a lot of money and have one factory in India run by A and the other factory run B, and we can draw some inferences and they might be generalized because they're these really fairly basic things. Um, strategy we think about as being fairly contextualized and the particulars of a firm's market positions, its capabilities and so on, and, and maybe you know, historical. So, and that's it's actually contrast say chapter seven, you know, a, a B trial is kind of interesting because there you don't claim you've learned any universal truth. You've learned for this organization in this context, running our sales this way today did a little better. We don't even know the long run implications of that, but that's a kind of more modest statement versus we are searching for some general truth. And yeah, they're lovely to find, but I think we also needed some modesty. And also, you know, as you rise up the food train, whether it's the RCT or big data, as things become more, quote, strategic, what does it mean to be more strategic? It means there's intertemporal kind of commitments. It means there's interdependencies, okay? So that stuff works more awesomely, <laughs> the less strategic it is. When feedback is embedded and it's intertemporal, uh, it becomes more challenging. And so I do get back to the sort of really interesting challenges around intermediate selection, 
and the mechanism, the imperfect ways which actors do it, or if you go cognitively, how we generalize. And, and AI people are worried about the generalization challenge too, because we're data sparse. So I think, yes, there's clearly some, some truth there, but, and I'm not, <laughs> but we need to recognize the, you know, um, as in when you're talking about, you know, the, the, the complex version of it and not, not the cartoon version of it. Thank you. It's a really important issue. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um, we have three more minutes, and we said we're going to go back to this question about the, the, the research question that's worthwhile a whole academic career. So I want to give the opportunity to each one of the presenters to answer that. So let's start uh, from the last presentation. So Son Sui, what would be your answer to that? What's a, 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 a question that, that you would recommend a PhD student to devote his or her whole career? Uh, <laughs> David, that's a great question. I think I'm in the position to answer that question last. Okay, let's <laughs> yeah, do that. I really then. like to learn from Dan, from Linda, from Viva. Of course. So let's then start with the same order of our presentations. So Biv, uh, Bivha, what could be your answer? So, so, you know, um, Felipe, I wish, you know, somebody comes to my office and says, well, PhD students, what do I want? What should I study? And say, well, study multiple goals. It's super interesting. We, you know, there are lots of unanswered questions and so forth, right? Um, that would be my default response, but I would try to stop myself from giving this default response because I think, I genuinely think what I would say is, you know, go find something that you're curious about or something that's interesting to you. Uh, observe the organizational world, act as an anthropologist and you know, see what's happening. If you can't go to an organization, read newspapers, use read business magazine, find something that is fascinating you and is very interesting to you, then come back and we'll figure out what's the problem. Why is this important? Is it worth studying? What's the best way to study? So, <laughs> You know, much as I would like to say multiple goals, I will try and avoid and not say that. And yes, say, go find something. Yeah, yeah well, people. you know, you're going to spend 10 years of your life, you know, going forward, thinking about it. So you might uh -huh. as well pick something that interests you, not me. <laughs> yes. So. Great. Thank you. Um, Dan? Yeah, so basically, Viva's answer. So, so a younger Felipe Cesar enters my office, interested in organizational architecture and decision-making. That was a pre-existing condition. Uh, we, we can have a conversation around it. Uh, and so and I think as per Viva, you know, one can respond, can help contextualize it. Uh, but I think, um, and we, we, it's you know, important about, you know, one of the wonderful, you know, we have this incredible profession where yes, we occasionally have to attend faculty meetings and we grade papers and so on. But society gives us a fair amount of resources and a fair amount of freedom. And so in the spirit of Viva's remark, kind of, what is your passion? And I would not presume that I have some particular insight, but I think, you know, there is a collective mind. So yes, I think I can interact with them in useful ways and possibly challenge and, 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 and push. And as per Viva, yeah. I have my particular passions and interests. Um, but I think it's, I think it's, well, let me add another editorial then let it go. I think it's a mistake to get excessively um, uh, pragmatic, well, in the sense of instrumental, I'm sorry, is the word I'm looking for. I mean, 
let me let my editorializing is in the world of a three essay dissertation where your second year paper might be able to become oh and I do these two other things my push is more of a process push is to be ambitious uh, and and to do it a dissertation and and per your challenge Felipe what really has legs not that I could get a publication in a journal but this really is this is going to be the first imperfect plank on a broader agenda yeah. uh, and, and recognizing yes it's going to be imperfect but it but it is potentially generative and I think our current context where we evaluate prospective faculties if they're coming up for tenure and we look at how many articles they have and things like that. The system is working against that kind of, um, not the paper, but the agenda. So I endorse your question, but flip it as Viva did to, to the focal individual. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think the notion that this is a real agenda, not that I could achieve a paper is, is a kind of useful uh, Thank you. premise and, and, and call run out of time, but I want to give the opportunity to Linda and Sonsui to, to have at least a minute yeah, if they want to answer this question. Linda? Uh, sorry, please unmute. No. I would reinforce, uh, underline what Dan and Viva have said, you know, pick important topics, pick something that you're passionate about, where you think you have something new to say about. Um, if I reflect on my own experience, my assignment for my dissertation topic for my advisor was to be on norms. I spent a lot of time thinking about norms. They're really important, and but I didn't really have anything new to say, you know, or at least not that I could empirically track. So um, think about where you think you have something new to say. Um, and I'll pass on two bits of advice from Herb Simon, who was so influential this line of work. Um, I had the pleasure of overlapping with him at Carnegie Mellon for a time, and he would advise us, read science. Don't worry about reading your, your journals that much. You know, go to conferences so you know what's current and what's happening, but read science because there you're likely to find a new idea that you can take and impart, import into our ideas, our field. He also, and people are surprised when I say this, but he encouraged us to um, go out into organizations and see what you know, what they were doing, learn from that. So thank you. Thank you very much, Linda. And Sonsui? Thank you. Um, and let me explain why I like to be the last one to say, because Linda, Weber, and Dan, all my professors and I, I, I so my number one piece uh, advice is try to follow the work you like, the authors, try to follow them in all the conferences and see what their presentations they'll make. So that's what I did when I was a PhD student and continue to do today as well. Um, and I find that that's very, very helpful. So I think uh, being uh, here to attend uh, the webinar, it's, it's a, just uh, the right thing for the students and uh, um, also pay attention to what uh, Mika put uh, at the beginning of the presentation, like all the schedules of the future seminar, the webinars, I think all these will help a student to come up with a research question. They will help them to find what they're interested in and may be passionate at. So that's it. Thank you so much, Sonsui. And thank you everybody. Thank you the STR division for organizing this. Thank you the presenters for their wonderful presentations. 
And thank you all for being here. I think this was a, a wonderful time to, to think a little bit more about behavioral strategy. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank, -bye. thank you. Thank you, Felipe.